Welcome to This is the Jet Life with Dan Burnham, your guide to the New York Jets sports and much more. And now, your host, Dan Burnham. What is up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of This is the Jet Life. We are here, 0-13, after losing a game 3-40. to The Jets did not cover the spread that ended up getting up to 15 points. The Jets got obliterated by the Seahawks. They played against Geno Smith for more than a quarter of the game. Jamal Adams broke the DB sack record. And this game was horrible. It was the ugliest game that we've played all season. Um, not because... We were sloppy and just a mess and making a bunch of stupid bonehead mistakes, but just because we got outplayed on both sides of the ball so significantly that it was alarming. A lot of it comes down to coaching, but, I mean, you can't feel good leaving this game. I've been finding positives. You know, we played a pretty good game against the Raiders. I've been trying to find positives of players, but, like, when you finish a game like this and you get that beat up, that absolutely dominated for 60 minutes, three hours, I mean, holy moly. This was, like... It was just a mess watching the zombie Jets play. The Jets are 0-13 now. Season's not looking great. Looks like we may go down as one of the worst three teams in NFL history. We may get the first overall pick, so hopefully there's some good that comes with that. But I'm going to try to record a a quick, simple podcast this week. You know, the Jets did not give us anything on the field. They don't deserve my full, you know, 60 minutes to talk about this performance. We had like a 200 total yards of offense. It's uh, it's just a tough, tough season to deal with it. As my dad always says, if any season the Jets are going to be this bad and play this uninspiring brand of football with this coaching staff and everything, why not have it be 2020 when everything has just been sucky? You know, we were hoping to even have a football season. There was a point where I was like, you know what, I would just take seven or eight games. If you could guarantee me we can watch eight games this year, I think I would take that because there was a lot of ambiguity. Maybe we wouldn't even be watching football. But we are, and still, I will take a Sunday watching the Jets lose 3-40 to over a Sunday doing anything else. As sad and pathetic as that may be. But that's why I do the podcast, because I love this more than anything. It just still sucks. So we're going to do a typical podcast. Typical format, just to kind of breeze through it as quickly as possible to try to move on to next week. Before I get to all that, I need to remind you to rate, review, subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. It is under the Gang Green Nation podcast series title. This is the Jet Life. Okay, so we'll start with a recap. The New York Jets come out and they do a decent job moving the ball down the field, as they always do. This is the seventh game in a row the New York Jets have scored on the first drive of the game. That's either second or first in the entire NFL for current streaks. Now we go down nine plays, 48 yards, a couple nice runs, a couple, you know, one nice pass to, you guessed it, Chris Herndon. The Jets get a field goal from Sergio Castillo. Now the Seahawks get the ball and they move it with ease. They do a couple trick plays and you're like, wow, they are just pulling out everything to get this, this game underway. They score like nothing. Jets get the ball back. Unable to move the ball this time. Punt it. Seahawks move the ball with ease. Russell Wilson takes a shot towards the end zone. DK Metcalf. Marcus May in one-on-one coverage makes the most incredible pass deflection that was like, holy holy shit, when you saw the pass deflection, you were stoked. And then the ball came back down, and he caught it on his back in the end zone to force a turnover and stop a play that, you know, the type of thing that the Jets should be dominating with us all day, just chucking it downfield to DK Metcalf, but Marcus made. Weren't expecting to see him one-on-one there. Awesome play. And, you know, that was was definitely the highlight of the entire day. The entire game, for sure. After that, it's a series of punting the ball and then kind of moving the ball downfield and, and finding opportunities to get into, you know, not really threatening to score, but field goal range and just miss, miss, miss by Sergio Castillo. Nine points left off the board with three missed field goals after his first make in the first half. So the Jets are now down 3-23 to after the Seahawks continue to move the ball downfield. They move it with ease. I mean, we really don't make Russell Wilson's job hard 
at all at any point in this game. We sacked him zero times. He threw four touchdowns on 21 for 27. And if he played the whole game, they easily could have put up 60, 70 points. I mean, when you look back at this thing, it wasn't the Jets that left plays off on the field. It was the Seahawks. They dropped three interceptions, one by Jamal Adams. Thank goodness he didn't get that one. It was basically a gift from Sam Darnold. You know, I mean, they missed an extra point in there. We missed our kick, sure. But they took Russell Wilson out in the third quarter. We go to the third quarter, Jets still can't score. I mean, somehow we can always score on the first drive, and then after that, everything just goes horrible. Don't get me wrong, Sergio Castillo was the reason we didn't continue to score in the first half, but the second half was just ugly, ugly, ugly. Sam Darnold started getting sacked. He was sacked three times in this game. And we're playing against old freaking Geno Smith in the third quarter. They're putting in backup wide receivers, backup running backs, backup defensive players. And even still, they outscore us. Once Geno Smith comes into the game, Seattle scores three more points. The Jets don't score again. I mean, they lose this game 40-3. to And other than the first drive of the game where they score three points, and then a couple drives here and there where they get into field goal range that we're all, you know, taken off the board with those misses... And one Marcus May interception, there was almost nothing to like about this game. And that's, you know, it's kind of like the sum of this season. We're an 0-13 team, but this was just the ugliest, most deflating game of them all. Now, we were missing some players. Sure, we're missing Denzel Mims in this one. We're missing Greg Van Roten. He's a nice piece to have in there. But when it comes down to it, it's just... It's no excuses when you get beat up this badly, when you can't do anything to stop an offense. The Seahawks are a good team. They're one of the better teams in the league. They're one of the better teams in the NFC, for sure, potentially going to be playing for a Super Bowl. But they are beatable, no question. The Seahawks are a little bit one-dimensional when it comes to their offense. Well, not one, but they're like two, three-dimensional. They've got two receivers that they throw to, and they like to run the ball. Their defense is okay. They like to put their safety up in the box, blitz him. But they don't have a ton of uh, versatility in terms of other stuff that they can pull out. You put them up against the Jets, and they look like the best coaches you've ever seen in your life. And they were in this game. They made Adam Gase and company. Frank Bush's first game is D.C., put up 40 points in three quarters, 37 points in three quarters, and then the final three. I mean, nobody can feel good about this. And if we were wondering whether or not the Jets' defensive issues were related to Greg Williams, I think it's pretty clear now that that's not, <laughs> that's not what the issue was, and we did not get better by getting rid of him. Looking over at the team stats, they just had 12 total first downs in this game. Horrible. We had 185 net yards. That was 116 passing, 69 rushing. Both absolutely horrible. Our yards per play in this game, 3.6 yards per play. We had seven penalties for 50 yards. And even still, we only had the one turnover. We had the one fumble by Frank Gore. No interceptions thrown. For the most part, we were holding on to the ball. We just couldn't do anything with it. We were just throwing it out of bounds, throwing it into people's feet, getting sacked, finding a way to punt the ball, running it way too often, running it. It felt like right away when the game started, Adam Gase wanted to do what he did with Ty Johnson, kind of, and and Josh Adams last week on the left side, but gave it to Frank Gore instead because he loves Frank Gore. And having Frank Gore back in the offense honestly probably hurt us, not only because of the fumble, but just because it makes us so much more one-dimensional, and he's obsessed with if it's, you know, we rush on first down. Okay, now it's second and nine. We rush it again, and it's like when you're in second and nine, this team doesn't pick up yardage quick enough to be picking up another two yards here and put us in third and seven, third and eight. We can't be in that situation. we got to start throwing in these situations. got to have more play action. There has to be a little bit more creativity there, but if he has an opportunity where he can run Frank Gore and try to pick up three yards, he's going to do it whenever he can. That was evident again, but um, just a really... Really tough game overall. Third down efficiency, we were 4 for 12, 33%. We're always bad at that. I mean, we had one sack in this game. We sacked Geno Smith a single time. We gave up 40 points, you know, and we (laughs) we had a whole team benched against us in the third quarter. So, quit beating that drum here. We're going to move over to a quick standings check. The Jets are still... It's where we were last week. The Jets have the worst record in the NFL at 0-13. They have the first pick locked up right now. One back from them is the Jaguars, who have one win. They didn't win this week either. They didn't really have a chance against the Titans. They were pretty beat up from the start. 
Um, again, we were kind of looking at the end of the year. If the Jets are going to win a game, it's not going to be against the Rams next week. It's not happening. Um, it's probably not going to happen against the Browns. And the only chance that it could happen, in my mind, is against the Patriots in Week 17. So maybe there's one chance we watch this game this week. It's really hard to think to yourself that the Jets are they have a win inside of them. But you never know, playing against Bill Belichick in the last week of the season where you're about to lock up Trevor Lawrence the next decade. Get a little bit nervous playing that game. Uh, the Jaguars, if they win one more game, doesn't matter. The Jets will automatically have that first pick. And they play the Bears in Week 16. That's the game we're really looking at for them to have a shot at. You know, they play the Colts potentially because it's a divisional matchup. Division games are weird. And I think the Jaguars, one win, came against the Colts earlier this year. But other than that, like, you know, the Jets are probably going to be sitting there regardless because they ain't winning much. If you look at the rest of the AFC East, we've been following them. They are doing much better than the Jets. Uh, of course, the Patriots got smoked on Thursday Night Football this week, which was great to see. They're now 6-7, and seven, under five hundred, and looking like they will not be making the playoffs. We love it. They started sucking, then they kind of got better, and then they started sucking again, and they kind of had another rush, and it was like, we don't really know if they're in or out. There's been streaks this year where it's like, oh, this team is horrible, and then it's like, oh, no, they're making a little run. Now I think they're basically forked. Six and seven, best they can finish this thing is nine and seven, and that's not going to get them in. Buffalo's ten and three. I mean, they are the team to beat, but you look at Miami, eight and five there, they have the best differential in terms of point differential. They're plus 85. Because defensively, they've only given up 245 points. They have a really good defense this year. That's one of the best defensive marks in the entire NFL. It's like third or fourth in the league. And they're playing good football. They're coached well. And they do have some issues. They don't have the best playmakers in the world. They don't have great running backs right now. The offensive line could use some work. And the quarterback is still learning and trying to find his way. But when you look at the defense, the special teams, a few players mixed into that offense, and the good coaching, that's a team that can play with anybody. I mean, they played with the Chiefs this week. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Bills win the division, the Dolphins make the playoffs, and hopefully there's not too much success for either of them because the last thing we need right now after the Patriots finally have been dethroned is to see the Bills or Dolphins step into the spotlight and become the new hottest ticket in town. You know, for crying out loud. But uh, that is what we have for standings right now. I wanted to do father time, talk to my dad, kind of explain to him, like, Dad, this is not going to be a regular podcast because I don't have it in me. I was uninspired by this game. It was depressing to watch. This whole season has been horrible. The fact that we're coming off this thing, I got to, you know, I've been painting this thing, trying to put lipstick on a pig all season long, trying to make it look like the team's not as bad as it is because there is some stuff to be hopeful for. This was a decent draft class. We've got some good players in there. we got a lot of cap space, but we really are still so far away and... When you leave this game, you have not evaluated anything positively where you're like, we really didn't come out with one nugget of good stuff in this game. And I don't want to just start saying everybody sucks and this guy's got to go and this guy's got to go and this guy's got to go because that's not the case. But in a game like this, when you get this outplayed in all facets of the game, it's just uh, not the content that we're really looking for. So I told him I'm going to do a really quick podcast, try to get through this thing, give them the effort that they gave us. And he was totally on board. So he gave me this quick little father time to be on brand with this episode. So this is this week's father time written by my dad, David Burnham. Let's call this the Sunday that doesn't exist. Let's look forward to next week and let's sign Marcus May. Go Jets. End scene. Wow. Short, sweet, to the point. Goodness, I had it better myself. Let's call this a Sunday that doesn't exist, right? Let's just forget about it. This was the most forgettable game. One of my buddies, a uh, member of the board, Mitch, during the game, or when it was over, he messaged me and said, like, what did I just watch? What just happened? I find myself watching this entire game, and all of a sudden it was over, and I felt like I don't even know what happened. I don't remember anything. Nothing stood out as exciting. I remember Geno Smith's name being mentioned, and the rest of it's just a blur. And he's right, because there was nothing memorable, no impactful plays, nothing that made you like, oh, i got to see that again. Other than the Marcus May interception, it was bone dry. So this is going to be an easy game to forget. Luckily, they didn't have any, like, really stupid blunders and really bad, embarrassing plays. They're not going to be on some Follies mixtape 
following this game. It's just bad performance, bad execution, getting dominated by a better team. Next line there. Let's look forward to next week. You know, he is not positive. He's not really optimistic about the upcoming game against the Rams. My dad is a, a big fan of the Rams and what they're doing this year right now, especially that defense. That game could easily be tougher than the Seahawks game. It's going to be tough to play it on Sunday, and we could absolutely get destroyed similar fashion to this week. But, you know, he's right. Let's look forward to that because it's another opportunity. And we've played some games that we should have lost this year, and we've played them pretty well. And we've hung in there here and there. It's not like every single week the Jets have this 3-40 to 40 blot. It's way more often than it should be, but it's not every week. You know, we basically won last week playing what potentially could be a playoff team in the Raiders. I don't want to hang my hat too much on a loss there, but we've seen the Jets come out and play decent football, and I'm going to look forward to the opportunity to do that. I'm not going to just assume that they're going to get their asses beat, but I do know that they will lose. The last line of that, let's sign Marcus May. And that he's absolutely right about as well, because Marcus May doesn't have anything left in his contract. With Jamal Adams gone, the other safety drafted in that same class. Marcus May is like one of the last veterans left on this team, and he's playing at a very high level. One of the big things that was a concern early on in his career was injuries, but he hasn't been injured recently. He's played healthy this year, played almost every snap last year, almost every snap this year, and he's playing at a high level. You know, his tackling isn't exactly where I'd like it to be, but as a defensive captain, style guy, he calls the plays in the defense, he calls the shots, similar to that David Harris role, and he makes plays. He covers well, he's great coverage safety. He made that great play this week, which was just icing on the cake. And you really have to start signing some of your own guys. If every single year you build your team through the draft, and then when those guys' original rookie contracts run out four years later, you aren't prepared to resign them. If you just do that every single year, every four years, you're never going to be good. Eventually, you have to have good draft picks and hold on to a few of them and build the team that way. Marcus May was old when he drafted him from Florida. He's a little bit older than he should be for his draft class but he still is worth a three-, four-year deal just to keep him on this team. I'm not talking about blowing him away with absurd money, but let's get Marcus May back in the locker room. He's a good guy for the team. He believes in the team. He's an honest, hardworking guy, plays well. He's an in-house guy, a veteran with some leadership. And if you wait until he's a free agent, other teams are going to go after him. And when they're making their pitches and they're explaining what he just went through and what it's like in other organizations and how much fun everybody else has, and he can see the facilities and the happiness in the players, <laughs> it's going to be hard for him to say no, right? But you can extend him now, have the discussions, have the contract negotiations, and get that pen to paper before he even has an opportunity to see what else is out there. And that's our best chance to retain him. I'm not trying to like force him into here into this prison. I think that the team will get better around him, and it will eventually be a better place to play. But I just think these are the types of people, when you've got those guys in the team, you got to get them before free agency. And the time is now. Mid-season, that's when you can get a little bit of a bargain as well, perhaps. Because, you know, you're being cool. You're, hey, we want to get you. We're not going to make you wait until the end of the year and drag it out. We want you. We're going to prioritize it. You can see that. And everybody kind of feels a little bit better about the situation. And sometimes you can get a couple, uh, you know, a million or two knocked off. That was a good father time. Short, sweet, to the point. Appreciate it, Dad. And now, a quick commercial. Alrighty, welcome back. We can now talk about the offense in this 3-40 to blowout loss against the Seattle Seahawks. In this game, there was not much offense to be had, not much running room, not many passing lanes, not much success at all. The game plan was horrible, as we talked about, and the Jets totaled 185 yards. 185. That was split between 116 passing yards and 69 rushing yards. 4.0 yards per pass, 3.0 yards per rush for a whopping 3.6 yards per play average in this game. The Jets did make it into the red zone two times. Did not score a touchdown, of course, in the entire game. Had the opportunity to kick a couple field goals. Didn't get those. Three points total. And... Yeah, let's get into it. Sam Darnold has been a shell of himself. And for anybody who's on the fence or was on the fence getting into this Trevor Lawrence talk, it is becoming easier and easier to buy into that narrative every single week. Now, it's not a sure thing yet, as we've talked about the Jaguars record before. But Sam Darnold, I mean, he's a guy that I want to root for more than anything. But for crying out loud, can we see a good performance from him? And I don't think this is an easy matchup by any means. 
But when you look at the Seahawks and what they've done this year, you think to yourself, well, that defense has been a little bit soft. It's been exploited many times this year, and perhaps the Jets can do the same. The Seahawks have been rolling as of late. They're definitely not the same defense the last five weeks that they were the first you know, seven weeks of the season. But Sam Darnold in this game, 14 for 26 for 132 passing yards. 5.1 yards per attempt. No touchdowns, no interceptions, no fumbles. Just nothing there. 132 yards. If you want to get to, I, I want him to be like a 4,000-yard quarterback, and that's what he should be. When he came out of college, he had that Aaron Rodgers, Andrew Luck style of uh, passing the football. He should be able to get 250 yards a game to get him to 4,000 yards on a season. That's the type of talent that he has. But the way that we're using him and the way that these games are unfolding, he's getting consistently under 200 passing yards. And nobody wants to watch that type of football. That's the type of football that gets you three points total. That's the type of football that gets you to 0-13. You're getting 5.1 yards per attempt and 130 passing yards out of your quarterback. Now, I'm happy that he's not throwing bad interceptions. He took three sacks in this game. I mean, he was outmanned for sure. We had some replacements on the offensive line. His job is definitely absolutely difficult, but he is not making it easy to watch these Jets, and he's not giving you a ton to be excited for. He's not giving you a ton to believe, like, hey, if he comes back next year, even with a different coach, Maybe we can start to turn things around, get a little progression. It's like, listen, I think he's still got the talent. I know he's got the natural ability, but, you know, how long is it going to take before we can get to that? And it is so buried beneath all these problems and, and issues that Adam Gase and company have caused. Will it ever be found? So it's just a, you know, it's a depressing time to be watching who is supposed to be the God Emperor quarterback of the United States. Moving over to the running game, Frank Gore was back in this game, right? Adam Gase fed him frequently early on. He had eight carries, 23 yards. Was not overly efficient. Of those 23 yards, 11 of them came on one play. So you're talking about like 12 yards on the other seven carries. So not a great game. Then he fumbled the ball, and I think he lost a lot of favor at that point. We started seeing a little bit more Josh Adams. And Ty Johnson was sprinkled in throughout the game. Ty Johnson last week was our player of the game. He rushed for over 100 yards, first rusher to do it since week five of 2018. That was an exciting moment. But this week, eight carries, 16 yards. He didn't have the same juice, the same uh, explosiveness against the Seahawks. I think that they realized that with the receivers that we had playing in this game and with the way that our offense has been, if they could stop Ty Johnson specifically rushing to the left side, then the offense almost disappears. And it did. Josh Adams, six carries for 27 yards. He's been the bright spot of the rushing attack, um, you know, a few times this year. And last week he was like nine carries, or he had like a nine-yard per carry average. He doesn't get it a ton. And, you know, he's still a younger guy. He's bounced around a little bit. He's been on our practice squad. But when he comes in, he makes stuff happen. And, you know, I think I've said this before, and I think it's bringing more and more true in my own head. When I watch guys like Josh Adams play and I see some success from guys like Ty Johnson, I just, I don't want to be too negative at this point in his career, but I am just kind of not that excited about Michael Pirine and his future with the Jets. I definitely think that running back is a position that we have to address. When I was like comparing some numbers, what we've seen this year from Michael Pirine is almost statistically the same as what we got from Eli McGuire his rookie year. Michael Pirine has a little bit more Rushing statistics, Eli McGuire, his rookie year, had a little bit more in the receiving game, but they both had two touchdowns, somewhere around 400 total yards, same averages, basically. And when you think about it, he does play just like Eli McGuire in that, like, he's not really that good at anything, but he's kind of okay. And at first, you're like, maybe he's got some stuff. And we were kind of excited about Eli, but never really excited. And then he just kind of fizzled away. I think that's what's going to happen to Michael Pirine right now, if I had to be honest. I think that... You know, he'll be on the team next year as a second or third option, and then the year after that, maybe the third option, and then one day you just don't see much more of Michael Pirine because in the games that he's played, he's not been overly efficient. He hasn't shown any great burst of speed, strength, moves, lateral quickness, really anything. So, you know, anyways, I don't know why I'm, I'm bashing the guy right now. I just have been thinking that more and more, and as we're in an evaluation season, you know, I'm really high on Mims. I'm really high on guys like Becton and Braden Mann. I think there's a bunch of guys that we have that are young that are going to be big parts of our future, but I'm not going to just 
cherry coat, sugar coat. But I'm not just going to sugarcoat every single player and everything the Jets do. I think that Jabari Zuniga has been absolutely horrific when he's played, and I think that LaMichael Piron is potentially one of the most average to below average running backs in the league in every bit of his game. So we will move over to the receivers. And in the receivers, we found ourselves the what, 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 the offensive player of the game, one, Braxton Berrios. You know this guy well. He is a cool, calm, and collected number two slot receiver. Braxton Berrios typically does not have a ton of action when Jamison Crowder plays. Jamison Crowder was questionable for this game, ended up playing. Jamison Crowder got five targets in this game, but only had two catches for seven yards. What was Berrios doing? Oh, I don't know, catching three balls for 49 yards, including a 34-yard long and two third-down conversions, one of which was a crazy catch where Sam Darnold was rolling out, and Braxton Berrios was running to his side and had to reach back behind him and kind of do like a somersaulting catch over the line, and you were like, what, what? And then there was a moment at the end of the second half where Braxton Berrios caught that 34-yarder and got us into field goal range, and you were like, oh, Castillo's coming in here to make amends for the two missed kicks and get us back on the board, and that didn't happen, but... Braxton Berrios was the bright spot for the Jets' offense in this game. He really, you know, he's been a guy who's, he doesn't have a ton of of crazy ability, but he's got a way of finding impact when he's on the field. He finds a way to catch the ball. He finds a way to get open, to get yards after catch, to scrap for your extra yardage, stay in bounds. And it's just things that you see a lot of people who get playing time. Guys like Jeff Smith have gotten a lot of playing time. Obviously, Chris Herndon. And Ryan Griffin have gotten a lot of playing time, and they don't find a way to get themselves into the game. And Braxton Berrios, he does. And he's moved around. He's used a little bit more creatively than almost anybody else. I mean, Adam Gase isn't known for being all that creative to begin with. We saw Braxton Berrios a couple times lining up in the backfield, coming out of some different sets, just to get him involved because he is kind of a playmaker. Other than Berrios, we had Rashad Perriman, three catches, 26 yards on six targets. Perriman is... You know, he's exactly what you think he is. He's okay. He's good at one thing, which is running fast. Sometimes he catches it when he gets down there. He's okay otherwise in the rest of the receiving route tree, and he's clearly not a number one or number two option, but he's one of those guys that, yeah, for a specific skill set and everything, he's got that and deserves to be a top four guy on a receiving unit, just not a top two guy. We had a cool moment in this game. Jaleel Scott had his first ever catch, and it was really exciting to see wide receivers coach Sean Jefferson and company really cheering for him. And it was one catch for 16 yards, and it was uh, just a great moment. It's nice to see some life on a lifeless, sad, depressed Jets team that you're just like, what is what is there to even be happy about? But you know what? This is still important to some people. Guys like Jaleel Scott, that was a life moment for him, and there's some happiness to be found. That one catch, and Marcus May's interception. We spoke about Jeff Smith, one catch, 14 yards. Chris Herndon found his way into the box score with a catch and nine yards. A nice little catch early on in the game. You think to yourself, oh, maybe Chris Herndon's going to have one of those games where he gets, you know, a really high 30 or 35 yards. He didn't. That was the only catch he had. Other than that, not much to it. What do you expect? He had 14 total receptions for the team for 132 yards. It was... It was not much going. Braxton Berrios is the player of the game for offense. Proud of what he did. If I had to have a runner-up for it, it probably would have been Mikai Becton because we didn't have crazy rushing stats. We weren't super dominant to the left. There definitely were some nice gainers to his side. He definitely uh, helped do a couple double teams on defensive linemen, knocking them over, and made some big plays swinging out. He pulled a few times as well, but I think his presence was felt. He was successful. He's the best offensive lineman that we have, and I think it's pretty noticeable. I think when you go back on film and you look at stuff, you just see him doing things that you don't see a lot of linemen in the league even able to do. Moving quickly, getting downfield, hitting guys, you know, chipping one guy, and then going for another. Who's picking up double guys on certain blitzes in this game, and it's just, he's awesome. He's absolutely awesome. The rest of the offensive line, not super impressive. Of course, this team runs for 69 total yards on three yards per carry. So, and Sam Darnold isn't finding anybody open or turfing. It's just, it was a, it was a bad offensive performance. What do you expect from these Jets? A little more than three points, but not much more.
All right, we are going to move over to the defensive side of the ball. And the defensive side of the ball was arguably worse than the offensive side of the ball. If you just look at the Seahawks in this game and what they were able to do on their possessions, they had a touchdown on the first drive of the game. 75 yards down the field, touchdown. Now, they went down the field again and had the opportunity to score a touchdown, but Marcus May had a dope interception in the end zone. Okay, we stopped him there. They get the ball back, 70-yard drive for a touchdown. They get the ball back, four-play drive, field goal. We did stop him at one point, and they had to punt. But then we got the ball back, went down the field, missed a field goal. They get it, 70 yards and a touchdown. Okay, end of the first half. Seahawks get the ball first. What do they do? 11 plays, 75 yards, and a touchdown. And they get the ball back, 7 plays, 40 yards, and a touchdown. At this point, Geno Smith enters the game with about two minutes to go in the third quarter because they're up 37-3, to and there's no reason to play really anybody in this game because it's an absolute joke. Geno Smith, we are able to force a punt because Geno Smith hasn't thrown a football in God knows when. He hasn't thrown yet this season, and he was a little bit rusty. But then, you know, he settles into his position a little bit, moves the ball down the field, playing quarterback, 54 yards, they get a field goal. Even Geno was able to score on this defense. That far removed play with all backups in a game that was out of hand. They weren't even trying to score. At that point, you're like trying to run the ball. Just get out of this game. Nobody gets injured. And they find a way. Just they happen onto three points with Geno Smith at quarterback. And we're just busting our ass trying to save jobs. Sam Darnold, come on. We got to find something. Adam Gase, don't be the worst coach of all time. And we can't get another freaking point. And it's it's laughable at times. This is one of those games, if you're pointing at anything, to be really depressed with. It was two Miami games, and it's this one. And so the defense, of course, was bad. We mentioned a couple punts in there. One on Geno Smith. I'm not too proud of that one. We had one great play by Marcus May, and we caused Russell Wilson to punt the ball one time. Other than that, it was a bunch of touchdowns, a couple field goals, and they got to the point where in the third quarter, which never happens, they were able to bench their entire team in the third quarter. Just alarming how easy it was for them. And Frank Bush, you know, the defense was the same thing that we ran with Greg Williams. This week we were happy to have you know, Blashawn Austin next to Bryce Hall in the defensive backfield. Maybe it'll change things. We'll be a little bit stronger. We know that their attack is great, but if we can take away the two... No, forget all that. It was a soft zone, the softest we've ever seen, the most wide-open receivers we've ever seen. We couldn't even stop the run for the first time. Normally, the Jets are great at stopping the run, but they averaged 4.8 yards per rush against us for 174 rushing yards. I mean, what can you say? You can start with the defensive line. Nobody stood out there other than Quinn and Williams was arguably one of the best defensive players in the entire team for the Jets. Foley Fadikasi was a nice little add-in. When he came into the game, he made a couple plays, so that's good to see. We had three quarterback hits in the entire game. Two of those were from Foley Fadikasi. The other one was from Javelin Gidry, just a random little hit. Foley had the sack, but it was a Geno Smith moment where he kind of tripped and didn't really know what he was doing, and Foley Fadikasi just kind of touched him on the back, and he gets a sack for that. Undeserved, but he got it. I think uh, Foley and Quinnen were definitely the stars of that defensive line. If you're looking for life from your guys, John Franklin Myers or Terrell Basham, Nathan Shepard, if you're looking for Bryce Hall to keep showing up, Henry Anderson, for crying out loud, it ain't happening. Those guys here and there are going to tackle on the line when a running back comes right at them, but other than that, they are not having an impact in the past three, four weeks. It's just nothing. Going over to the outside linebackers, you know who had a, a somewhat okay game? A couple nice plays by Frankie Luvu. We haven't talked about him much this year, but he came up. He had a tackle for a loss, one of the six we had. Made a couple nice plays and, you know, had his presence felt, which is something that we don't see a lot of, and this is one of those guys that's going to be fighting for a job. He's not going to be fighting for a guaranteed job right now. He's honestly fighting for a chance to be back in camp with us next year or camp with another team to then try to fight for a roster spot. But, you know, you put some film together like this, and you might get that opportunity. Inside linebackers, Neville Hewitt leads the team in tackles again. Neville Hewitt is quietly a really cool type of player. He is not great in coverage. He's not super fast. You can't ask him to do more than he's capable of doing, which he's not a super versatile 
flexible inside linebacker, but what he is is he's a damn good tackler, and he plays hard on every single play, and he has great pursuit angles, especially against the run. And that caused him to be one of the leading tacklers in the NFL. He's definitely leading the Jets by far. And he's playing every single game. He's reliable. You know he's going to be there. You just have to know that, yeah, we can't ask him to cover a running back out of the backfield on a wheel route. we got to know that he's not going to line up well against a tight end. He might get lucky here and there and tip a ball away. But he's he's going to get burned there more often than not. But Neville Hewitt has the nine tackles, two tackles for a loss. I mean, you could have looked at him and said that's a player of the game type of guy. And I'm not sure that I definitely want him being the starting inside linebacker for the next three, four, five years. But I'd like him on the team. I would like him to be the third linebacker. I mean, what was he issued to be this year? He was supposed to be behind at least Avery Williamson and C.J. Mosley in a perfect world. Maybe Patrick Unwasser, who we picked up, who hasn't played at all this year. Maybe he would be behind Blake Cashman. Who knows? So if you can get him in a role like that, I mean, boom, all of a sudden he's up on the field, leading the team in tackles, playing every single game, every single down. Neville Hewitt is, he is something to be, you know, prized. I I enjoy his game, and he is the cleanest tackler that we have on the team. Harvey Lang, he's been kind of quiet recently. He still gets tackles and stuff, but that one game showed us a flash where you thought maybe he was going to be future sort of guy that was going to be fighting for one of those roles that third what is this stupid NFL memo is great wonderful thank you for prohibiting local bubbles during the postseason I, had, I follow the Jets on these things I have no idea why they're even talking about the postseason that is absolutely irrelevant information for this fan base what was I saying Harry Lange anyways I don't think that he's going to be a top three guy I think that he's a special teamer maybe one of those back end linebacker type of guys who can fight, give you a little bit here and there, but he's never going to be a, a starter. You want to talk about the defensive backs? Because I don't. It was the same thing that we've seen. It was the soft zones, not a ton of man coverage, but the wide open area of the field that we leave in the middle every single week when we play those Tampa 2 zones were even more open than ever before. And the Seahawks threw the ball with ease. Russell Wilson, we mentioned, was 21 for 27. Geno Smith was 4 for 5. They had 124 quarterback rating. People were wide open. They passed the ball at will through four touchdowns. That if it wasn't for Marcus May's incredible interception, maybe five. I mean, in the words of Bart Scott, we couldn't stop a nosebleed in this game. If they wanted to put 60 up on us, I said it before, they could have done it. I'm confident that if they really wanted to, they could have made us look so freaking bad. And when you look at it, you you got these guys, LaShawn Austin and Bryce Hall. You're hoping to see them more playing together, and you're kind of excited going out. We know it's a big matchup, Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, but can we see a little bit from these guys? I'm going to be honest with you. I like LaShawn Austin. I think he's a good tackler. I think he's going to be a good number two, maybe one day number three uh, cornerback if you got a good unit. You'd like to have strong cornerbacks. Definitely the best cornerback on the team should be better than both of those guys. Maybe you get another guy in there as well. Brian Poole is better than both of them. Plays nickel. We'll see what we can do with him moving forward. But the point is, Blashawn Austin can be a guy, but not the guy. And Bryce Hall, if we're being honest, we haven't seen that much from him. I've seen a little bit of tape that looks like he's doing the right thing. He gets it. He's got that sort of like, yard. he's like an NFL player. His first year in the league, not a lot of guys can do these smart reads and be able to see that and know this. Like, what great instincts for a cornerback. But at the same time, like... What this year have you seen from him that you're just saying, wow, this guy's got it? I mean, he's just okay. Sure, he's in the right place in the right time sometimes, but he makes bad mistakes, gets penalties. And frankly, he doesn't look like a guy that can be a starting outside cornerback at this point in time. He's not going to get cut. He will probably be back in camp with us next year and will probably be on the roster. So he definitely has more opportunity to show what he can do. For crying out loud, Arthur Mollette, after last year, is still on the team showing what he can do. You know what I mean? Like, these guys get to come back and try again if they show a little bit of life. I think that Bryce Hall has shown enough life to be in that conversation for next year and try, but if he doesn't start playing better, no. Right now, he is not slated to be a top three, maybe even top four cornerback for a good New York Jets defense. So I'm not super stoked about that. Javelin Gidry, he's a weird guy. He's fast, good at special teams. He makes mistakes here and there. Other times he punches the ball out. He leads the team in forced fumbles probably, 
was like three, and uh, he's a scrappy little guy. He kind of reminds me of like a a slightly faster, younger, more raw Buster Screen type, which if you're hearing that name, you might be thinking like, oh, God, that's that's not a good thing to be. But Buster Screen is a serviceable NFL player, and if Javelin Guidry can you know, hone his skills a little bit and he can get to that point, that might be a good thing for him. Going to the safeties in this game, we did not have, of course, we don't have Bradley McDougal still, but we didn't have his backup. Rookie Ashton Davis is probably out for the rest of the season. So we played Matthias Farley, who was our special teams captain, doesn't play a ton at safety, and frankly, isn't all that good at playing every down safety. So he didn't have a great game. Marcus May, right there, baby. He's our defensive player of the game. Marcus May had that incredible interception. That play alone is enough to give me, give him player of the game because that was one of the best plays of the entire season. That would have been a, a career catch for a wide receiver. Seriously. And he's a safety guarding DK Metcalf in this game in the end zone. Unreal. He is our player of the game. He had the greatest play of the entire day. The only one when you think about this game, like what happened in this game? That's the one play that you remember. That's why he gets player of the game. So that is our defense. Before we move forward, we are going to do a quick pit stop at the cooler for some What's On Tap. That is right. This is What's On Tap. And today, I am drinking a little bit of boxed wine. Again, a couple weeks ago, I had the Boda Box. This week, it's Black Box Pinot Noir, also known as Pinot Noir. Fiance Shannon got me these nice little whiskey cups with my initials on them and some nice little uh, features to the bottom of the glass for my birthday a couple weeks ago. So I'm drinking it out of that, this classy little glass of mine, and just enjoying it, sipping in some cold New England winter day. We've got a storm coming tomorrow, big storm, possibly a foot, 16 inches of snow. Who knows what that could do? More time to sit inside and look at the college player highlights to see who maybe we would be looking for in the draft to try to upgrade this team. Who knows? But tonight, I got my red wine. I'll watch my stories later on. It'll be wonderful. And uh, that's that. All right, so that's what's on tap. Before we move over to the defense, we are going to do, or special teams, rather, too much red wine. Before we move over, we are going to do a quick commercial. All right, welcome back. You've been calling for it. You've been asking for it, Saint Dan. When are we going to talk special teams? We know about the offense. We know about the defense. But what do the special teams do? Well, they sucked. Uh, Sergio Castillo was doghouse player of the game. You guessed it. That guy was horrible. And it's so funny because Ficken was okay and then Ficken was bad. And we always knew deep down inside of our heart of hearts that Ficken sucks. And we didn't want to believe it because he was kind of on hot streak, and he was like our lovable loser. But then he started missing, and we were like, yeah, this is no good. And Sergio Castillo came in, and he started kicking him in. And at the same thing, we were just like, yeah, we know he sucks, and we know he's not that good, but he's making them, so he's our lovable loser now. And we're going to replace Ficken with him. And I got all on board the Castillo train, which was a huge mistake because the second I did that, Castillo started sucking. And now the Jets are picking up another kicker who was dropped from the Jaguars, who are the other worst team in the league. I think his name is Chase McLaughlin, and he's going to suck, but we're going to try to buy into him for a couple weeks if he makes a couple kicks because we've been so heartbroken by these kickers this year. And it's just a lot, and I know it's exhausting, but, like, to watch a kicker come out in a game like this and have four attempts and miss three of them in a game where you lose, like, 3-40, to it would have looked a lot nicer if the score was, I don't know, 40-12. to Yeah, it looks terrible still, but, like, 12 points is double digits. It doesn't look like we got absolutely roasted for 60 minutes looks like we got pretty roasted and uh no Castillo didn't do that and he's our doghouse player of the game and he is not an NFL level kicker he's just not he doesn't have the leg strength for it he doesn't have the consistency he doesn't have the accuracy for it he is a guy that had a cool run in the NFL after a weird minor league career and uh, it's time for the Jets to seriously address the kicker position again. I don't want to watch Randy Bullock play kicker for the Jets. I don't want to watch Ryan Quigley come in for kicks. I don't want to see freaking Kari Vedvik or Sergio Castillo or Sam Ficken. I want to see a guy like, I don't know, the Giants picked up Graham Gano. That seemed pretty easy. He's a pretty good kicker. I feel like finding a real player like that. Jason Myers, he was on our team. He seems to be doing pretty well. We watched him roast us all game. 
Well, that's the kicker situation. Punting? Braden Mann, he actually had a pretty bad game also. A couple of really bad punts. He averaged 39.4 yards per punt. Punted five times, and uh, one of them was like 34 yards, and it's just like, yikes. But, you know, he's young, and his leg gets tired, probably. He's got to be the most tired leg for any punter in the NFL with the amount of work that we've given him this year. You want to talk about special teams player of the game? Well, that's got to be Corey Ballantyne. Who's Corey Ballantyne? Well, he's the defensive back the Jets signed a couple weeks ago who's been kick returning for us, who had a pretty nice, flashy little game last week. And now, this week, a 66-yard return? Oh, my goodness, in a game where the offense can't get anything going. Maybe you can score by getting a 66-yard return and just starting in field goal range. Nah, Sergio Castillo missed the kick. But Corey Ballantyne had a couple nice returns in this game, and that 66-yarder was the best kick return we've seen this entire season. He's shown flashes since coming here a couple weeks ago in the return game, and when you can do that and get you into scoring range for any other kicker in the league, that's a big deal. And Corey Ballantyne is absolutely our player of the game. Other than that, Braxton Berrios, he finally returned a kick. I gave him a little bit of shit last week for not returning a lot of kicks, not being exactly what he was last year. But this game, one return for 11 yards, that is exactly what he was last year with a couple of 25 and 30 yarders sprinkled in. One return for 11 yards is great. Anybody over nine yards per punt return is well above average. 11, awesome. Good return from Barrios. Doesn't fumble the ball. We trust him there. Good old Braxton. And so that is really the scoop with that. Special teams was just not great. It just wasn't great. Thanks to Sergio Castillo. Valentine was the bright spot. Moving on, next week the New York Jets face the Los Angeles Rams at 4.05, another 4 o'clock game. I get tired of the 4 o'clock games, to be honest. It's dark here at like 4.30 these days, like basically pitch black, and I'm watching these games in the dark, and I don't know, something about just like giving your entire day to the Jets just feels a lot better than waiting around for it to happen, and then forward, you can't take a nap because you're waiting for the game. The whole thing is just... It's just not the way I like to do it. It feels backwards to me. But we are doing it. 4 o'clock, flex into the schedule. Los Angeles Rams are 9-4. and four. They are way better than us. They are as good or better than the Seahawks. They're different, but they're as good. Their offense isn't as high-powered in those areas. It's not like a DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and, and Russell Wilson that are just like this 1-2-3 triangle of power. It's more... Like, Sean McVay's got a really nice scheme with some really useful weapons out there. They got Robert Woods, who's a good, you know, he used to be on the Buffalo Bills for a long time, um, but he's a really good receiver who can do a lot. Cooper Cup is a very reliable slot-style receiver. Then you've got a couple tight ends there in Higby and Gerald Everett that can be athletic and get some stuff done. The offensive line is solid, but they got this running game, this three-headed attack between Daryl Henderson, Malcolm Brown, and Cam Akers, who was a rookie this year, guy I really wanted coming out of college. Jets weren't able to get him. Last week, he gets 172 yards rushing for his career average, and all of a sudden, it seems like his career best. It's like switching to him, becoming the lead back, but they move it around. It's whoever's got the hot hand. It'll probably start with Akers, but if we shut him down the way we've been pretty good against the run for most teams, uh, if we can start well, perhaps we can shift it to somebody else, but still, Daryl Henderson is a good back doing well, and even Malcolm Brown has flashes. So that offense is, you know, it's solid. It's got a lot of uh, flexibility, and it's got pretty good, smart play calling. When you look at the defense, it's arguably the best in the league. I mean, it easily could be the best defense in the NFL. And the way they're playing right now, I might say that they are. Aaron Donald is consistently these days, seems like the number one player in the entire league. He's a dominant defensive tackle who can stop the run, wreak havoc, get after the quarterback, tip balls, tackles for loss, you name it. This guy is a monster. He's like Quinn Williams on steroids. And he's going to be a huge problem. We'll see what the offensive line can do up against him. They've also got some of the best defensive backs in the entire league. Jalen Ramsey can go one-on-one with anybody. So whoever they choose, if they're just like, you know what, Denzel Mims is coming back. He missed this game. I, don't, I failed to mention that he missed this game for personal reasons, not an injury, just the COVID 
policy and coming back, couldn't get on the field in time or whatever. If he's back for next week, just say Jalen Ramsey says, you know what, I'm going to take Denzel Mims out of the game. Well, then guess what? Denzel Mims is out of the game. That's basically how that works. I hope we put put him up on Herndon or something. Like, this guy's already out of the game. Let's just take him out of the game anyway. Or put him on Rashad Perriman. The guys that are exciting to see still at this point are the young guys. You know, Mekhi Becton, Sam Darnold, Denzel Mims. Braxton Berrios still exciting to see. I like Jameson Crowder, so I like to see him do some stuff. But, you know, don't don't take out the only bright spots we got. This is going to be a tough game to score in. We scored three points against the Seahawks defense. We may score two points against the Rams, maybe even one, because the Rams are that good. It's going to be, I don't know what the spread is right now. I haven't checked yet. I can stall really quick while I load it and see if I can find the spread. How was your day? Mine was pretty good. I helped my sister move. Got a lot of boxes. Did that yesterday, did that today. Getting a little sore. It's kind of pain in the butt moving. It reminds me that I don't ever want to have to move. Next week, the New York Jets are 17-point underdogs to the Rams. That's a big number. That's almost as big as it gets. And you know what? People may see that number and say, oh, my gosh, the Jets are going to lose by more than 17. And that may actually get worse as time goes on. I will be watching the spread to see if... uh, See if 17 is the number we set at, or if it actually does go up. I can't imagine that people are going to be picking the Jets to cover 17 points after losing to the Seahawks 3-40. to 40. That's what's coming up next week. I'm going to review it. I don't want to review it, but I'm going to do it because that is what we do in this podcast. And if the Jets come out and play a great game and show some life, and some of the young guys step up, and we evaluate some good things, then it's going to be a lot more fun. And if it's another week like what we just watched, it's not going to be that much fun. And that is life when you're a New York Jets fan. That is the Jet Life. Name of the podcast. I didn't know just how horrible that life was when I made it, and now it's like, ooh, this Jet Life is pretty dang depressing and dark these days. Dreary, a lot of losses. But you know what? We have fun, and we're in this together. So I thank you for joining me, and uh, we'll be back next week. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Jets underscore Dan. Rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. Anywhere podcasts are found, they always help. I appreciate all of them. Gangrene Nation podcast. Series title, This is the Jet Life. Again, thank you for joining me. We'll see what happens against the Rams in Los Angeles. I'm Dan Burnham, and this is the Jet Life. <laughs>